0: ...from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. It's just a few seconds before 4 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, July 11th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. The public comment period has closed, and now those who care about Maine's new national monument are waiting to hear about its fate. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke visited Katahdin Woods and Waters recently as part of a federal review. While his comments after touring the area seem to indicate that he was favorably impressed, they are open to interpretation at this point. Governor LePage has been a vocal opponent of the monument, downplaying the beauty and historical significance of the area, as well as any economic benefits for the region. On Friday, the Natural Resources Council of Maine held a press conference in Bangor to release the results of their analysis of the public comments that have been submitted so far, and also to highlight the thoughts of some residents of the Katahdin Woods and Waters region. In our first segment today, we're going to listen in on that, and there are a few references to graphics, which you can view on WERU's Facebook page if you wish, but they're described well enough so that you don't need to view them to understand the points being made by the speakers here.
1: Good morning and welcome. I'm Lisa Pullman, the Executive Director of the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Today we are releasing the results of a comprehensive analysis that NRCM has just completed of the public comments regarding the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. These comments were submitted in response to the review of national monuments initiated by President Trump and managed by Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke. As of today, there are only three days left in the public comment period that began May 11th and closes this coming Monday, July 10th at midnight. Tens of thousands of people have submitted comments either online through the official website or by mail or hand delivery. The Department of Interior has posted on the official website all comments received, whether they were submitted digitally or in hard copy. NRCM has opened and reviewed every single comment posted online. We have spent more than 120 hours reading and evaluating public comments about Katahdin Woods and Waters, including thousands of comments that are included in attachments to online submissions. And this is what we've learned. (coughs) The public comments show nearly unanimous endorsement of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument we counted a total of 192,052 comments that specifically mentioned Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument as of midnight on July 4th. This number does not include generic comments in support of all national monuments under review or tens of thousands of names on petitions. Out of this total, 191,976 comments, or 99.96%, support the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. This really is virtually unanimous endorsement. Only 67 comments total out of more than 192,000 voiced opposition to the monument. So that's about .03% or three one-hundredths of 1% in opposition and thus you see this pie chart which frankly we had to um, make the little slice even bigger because uh, otherwise it wouldn't have showed up at all. If we'd printed out all of the comments, the comments in support of Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument would tower 60 feet high, the equivalent of a five-story building. In comparison, the comments and opposition stack up to about one quarter of an inch. So reading these, it becomes very clear that people overwhelmingly see Katahdin Woods and Waters as a positive development for Maine and the nation. They see the designation as a settled matter and do not want the monument taken away in any fashion. Many people who once opposed protection of these lands have since become strong supporters as they see economic benefits already arriving in the Katahdin region and financial investments underway that they know would not have happened were it not for the monument. Our other speakers here today will describe some of the positive economic benefits that are already happening. Our analysis shows that Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument is providing new hope for communities in the region, in the Katahdin region, as people come to visit the area for the first time, including many with out-of-state license plates not often seen in the region. These visitors are spending money, and they plan to return. Many others who have submitted comments have learned about Katahdin Woods and Waters Monument from news reports and are eager, eager to visit it. This is great news for the businesses and communities in the Katahdin region. Another point that clearly comes through from these comments is that there was ample opportunity for local input. This monument was established after a lengthy, multi-year, statewide public conversation about the possibility of a national park (laughs) or monument like this in the Katahdin region. Scores of people described the public meetings they attended over the past five years as the proposal was modified based on public input. Reading these comments, it's obvious that there has been exhaustive public outreach and coordination with relevant stakeholders over these years. I'll close with an excerpt from one comment that captures a broad sentiment expressed by many. From Kevin Parker, who lives in Millinocket, he says, quote, Just miles from my house, the newly created Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument is already bringing new life to our city in the form of tourist dollars, while also preserving the beauty of our great state for generations to come. With me here today are three Katahdin Region residents who submitted comments to the Department of Interior and they will share their views. First up, to my left, is Gail Fanjoy, the recently past president of the Katahdin Area Chamber of Commerce and a lifelong Millinocket resident. Gail. Thank you, Lisa.
2: Good morning, everyone. The Katahdin Area Chamber of Commerce worked tirelessly for three years to inform ourselves and to reach out to others as we grew in enthusiasm and our numbers grew in support of the creation of a national park and then later a national monument. This poster behind Lisa includes just a sampling of official chamber outreach and activities. It does not include individual member activities, nor the hundreds if not thousands of conversations we had as individuals with friends, co-workers, family members, and neighbors. We totally reject the notion that there was insufficient outreach in the designation of this monument. In fact, we find it preposterous. Those words were delivered to Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke at a breakfast meeting last last month. At this meeting, the secretary heard from a wide variety of Katahdin area businesses and elected, uh, local elected officials, exactly what the monument meant to them and to their livelihoods. At one point during the meeting, uh, participants, who were so inclined, were asked to stand up in a show of support for the monument. Every person stood. Elected officials, congressional staffers, the hospital administrator, the undertaker, the banker, the realtor, educators, owners of for-profit businesses, administrators of non-profit organizations, every person stood. We need to put to rest the notion that there is no local support for the monument. In fact, it's always been there, and it's even greater today. I was told a staggering statistic the other day, but first I need to give you a little background uh, for, to put it into perspective. As, as Lisa said, I'm a lifelong resident of Millinocket. I graduated from Stearns High School in the heyday of Great Northern Paper Company with nearly 200 students in my class. My daughter just celebrated her 20th class reunion, where there were 115 students in her class. This year's graduating class at Stearns High School, 30 students. How low can we go? Here's the staggering statistic. I was told there were five births last year. Five. Five. And if you lived in my town, you would know how unique a baby sighting is. (laughs) So make no mistake about it, we are in a struggle for our very survival. In order to realize our region's potential, we need to attract people. We need to attract those missing generations from our communities. We know that sense of place, livable communities, access to the natural and cultural resources of the area are vitally important to a new workforce. Therefore, it is vitally important to us that the Katahdin Woods and Waters remain a national brand. It is vitally important that the monument continue as designated, and it's a view that's obviously shared widely. The monument has brought businesses and communities together with a sense of hope and optimism. We do consider this issue settled, and we have no desire uh, to enter into another campaign to polarize and divide our communities. Some opponents of the monument have had a change of heart, believing that the monument is here to stay and we should unite in our desire to see it succeed. One of the most stunning reversals was articulated during the forum the Chamber of Commerce held with, with Secretary Zinke. The president of Katahdin Timberland said, quote, I was not an original supporter of the park or the monument, But I think at this point, given all the mill closures that we've had in the area, all of the changes in ownership and everything else, there's really absolutely nothing to be gained by revoking it. It would not help the forest products industry. End quote. Despite the uncertainty this review has created, good things are happening in the Katahdin region. New businesses, business expansions, investments, and the exciting possibilities um, with our Katahdin's ownership of the Millinocket Mill properties. The Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument is a drawing card not just for tourists, but for unrelated businesses and industry and their workforce. The monument brings national attention to the Katahdin region. It promotes our beautiful state and it gives rise to prosperity. And those are all things the Katahdin region needs. Thank you.
1: Next up, we have Dan Corcoran from Northwoods <laughs> Real Estate, also Millinocket, former manager of forest policy for Great Northern Paper for 30 years. Dan.
3: Thank you. Uh, I have a little different perspective on uh, the National Monument, having worked in the forest products industry for 30 years, uh, (laughs) including on some of the lands that are currently part of the National Monument. Uh, In 2003, uh, when Great Northern Paper went through bankruptcy, I left and went into real estate, and I'm currently the owner of Northwoods Real Estate in Millinocket. Uh, It's been It's been quite an eye-opener for me to deal with um, members of the public that have come to the area for the first time because they heard about the National Monument, and after being in town for just a few days, want to buy real estate. I mean, it's amazing, and we have seen a significant increase in the last year, year and a half, because of all the discussion about the monument. Then finally, the designation of the monument. It has really focused a big spotlight on the area and brought a lot of new people uh, to our business. Uh, we, um, uh, we take a lot of the things for granted, uh, the woods, uh, the vast forests that we have, the rivers, the mountains, the lakes. Uh, we all enjoy that, but uh, we take it for granted. But when people from away come here and go, wow, Uh, and then want to buy real estate, Uh, there's really something going on that's pretty significant. Uh, Our small real estate office a year ago had three real estate brokers. Today we have six, and we're in discussions with three more. Uh, That's a big deal in a small town. And a lot of that, uh, you can point directly to the National Monument. It's bringing people here, they're falling in love with the area, and it's having a significant impact on the local economy. Uh, I'm very supportive of the forest products industry, having worked in that industry for a long time. But I can see an opportunity for both tourism and forest products manufacturing in our area. The National Monument is not going to interfere with, uh, with forest products manufacturing. It's really a nice addition, because tourism has always been part of uh, the Katahdin area, and I think will continue to be in the future. I think the economic impacts that we've seen to date are just the beginning. We look forward to continuing with the National Monument and e- seeing even more exciting economic developments in the future. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Dan.
1: And we have Terry Hill, who's the owner of Shinpan Village
4: in Mount Chase good morning. Um, I co-own Shinpon Village with my husband, Craig Hill. Um, he's back working today. I want you to know that I was not supportive of the monument, of even a park in the beginning. I actually held a meeting of over 100 people um, in the beginning with the Department of Conservation to see what we could do to stop this whole idea. Um, it took me a couple of years of saying I was just tired of the negativity of that was going on in my community, that I've always been on the positive side of things. And one night my husband and I discussed that we wanted to reach out again to Roxanne and talk some more. But in the meantime, Lucas reached out to us. He asked to sit with us, meet. We met on the picnic table. We talked about things that were important. And from there, the meetings just progressed. We started inviting neighbors and friends and people in the Snowbill Club, ATV Club, businesses. And we had numerous meetings at our property over a couple of years. Um, you know, some of them, he took a lot of flack about it. Um, and he was great. And we came to the agreement that this could work under changing the use, the recreational side of the monument and the um, lower impact side, and that could work for our region, and he listened to us. And we, ourselves, have participated in several dozen meetings over the years. our son has been living in the Old Town area for 10 years, um, and he, a year and a half ago, brought back his family to take over our business in the future, and part of him coming back was the monument designation that it was ha- going to happen, or hopefully going to happen. He saw an opportunity to change some of our business, gearing towards different uses for the area. We watched our hunting season decline, and primarily because people aren't passing on that tradition anymore. We watched the fishing decline. So- some of the same reasons um, so we see this as an opportunity to reach out and do more things um, bike rentals side by side we have snowmobile rentals now and part of this was all to due to the monument that this is another way for us to increase our revenue to support my son and his family um, so I'm happy I'm proud to say that we are where we are today we embrace it um, look forward to the future and hope that it becomes a national park very soon um, and the people that have that were Opposed to neighbors, friends, we didn't like to talk about it for a while, so because you, you know, people got upset. But it's amazing to me the people who come and say, you know, you're right, it isn't that bad. It, they, we didn't lose anything big, and this summer already, our July Fourth was a 50% increase over last year. We've seen lots of license plates, Missouri, um, Idaho, just different ones that we wouldn't see at this time of year because it's early in the season still, um, and we're getting calls daily about the monument. People who plan to come to Acadia are going to come up and see what we have to offer.
1: So it's exciting. And we look forward to the future. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Well, those are our formal comments. And we'd all be happy to take any questions that you have. So you said the
2: public comment period ends in three days. Yes. So what happens after that?
1: Well, uh, the... Secretary of Interior Zinke has said that uh, he's going to make a formal announcement about his decision about our monument and, in general, this monument review that's been happening. And so um, that is ironically the anniversary, near the anniversary of the first, the first anniversary of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. I don't know what he's going to say. You know, we read the papers. You know, just like you, he was saying positive things about keeping it in federal ownership. We like that. He's saying he can uh, come up with a proposal that would please everybody. That seems highly unlikely to us. Uh, so we're just going to have to see what he has to say when the time comes.
0: And we're still waiting to find out what he has to say. That press conference was held Friday uh, by the Natural Resources Council of Maine in Bangor. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Coming up on Wednesday, July 26, WERU, in conjunction with Bucksport's Wednesday on Main program, will hold our third annual storytelling event at the Alamo Theater. We hope to see you all there and to give you a sample of what you can expect. Today we're going to bring you an encore presentation of three of the storytellers from last year's show who will be returning this year. It'll be a different theme this year, and uh, these won't be the stories that you'll be hearing exactly, but this gives you a sample of what the storytellers are like. This was recorded at the 2016 event. Our next storyteller is Sandra Dillon. Uh, She currently resides in Philadelphia, but she was raised here in Maine, spends summers in Maine now. She was actually born in her grandmother's house in Waterville and attended schools, including at the One Room Schoolhouse in Orland and also schools in Castine and Milo. She graduated from Bucksport High School and went on to college and pursued a long career in education. And she says that growing up in rural Maine, she was surrounded by storytelling as it was an inexpensive and wonderful source of entertainment. So welcome Sandra Dillon.
5: I have two. The first one is called My First Driving Lesson. I grew up on Hard Scrabble Hill in Orland, Maine. The hill is the biggest hill on the Castine Road. My dad had 20 lobster traps set around the head of Verona Island and off Sandy Point. He would time the pulling of his traps to be able to go out on the outgoing tide, thanks to looking at the half-tide rock. And after pulling his traps, he would then come home on the incoming tide. I usually accompanied Dad on his lobstering trips as I had specific jobs to do on the boat to help him. However, a special event happened one day when I was 12 years old. My dad had pulled half of his traps when the 30-horsepower outboard engine stopped and wouldn't start. Now, I had to hold on to our German shepherd dog, Skip, as he loved the water. If the motor stopped, he would jump overboard and swim home. But we were out in the bay, too far from home. Dad threw the anchor overboard, took the engine cover off, and discovered a broken part that couldn't be fixed on board. With no radio on board to call for help, he pulled up the anchor and rowed the 20-foot lobster boat against the current to home. There was a full moon the previous night, which meant the tides were extremely high or extremely low. When we arrived finally to our shore, the tide had gone way out, much more than usual, revealing a lot of flats mud with little water over it. When the keel of the boat finally became wedged into the mud, Dad took off his boots, rolled up his pant legs, and stepped into the muck. Skip was frantic to join him. Dad rocked the boat, freeing it from the muddy vice, then pushed the boat to our lobster car, a big box that held our lobsters for future sale. As I was handing Dad the lobsters that we had caught, my hand slipped from Skip's collar. He jumped into the water and mud racing back and forth, barking with happy freedom as he sprayed Dad and me in his delirious frolicking. Dad's anger went up a few more notches, and it was already pretty high. Dad pushed the boat to the mooring, loaded the dory, pushed the dory to the rocky shore, and carried the loads up to the steep bank to his farm truck. Now, this ancient relic had been someone else's problem before Dad took it off his hands. What wasn't dented was rusted. And although old Dad kept the engine and transmission working, he felt that good rubber wasn't necessary for a truck on its last breath. Needless to say, he got stuck a lot. As we were having a very hot summer, all of the usual springs for cleaning up didn't exist. After loading this stuff and skip into the truck, Dad looked at me and said, I'm too muddy to drive. It's time you learned. I was shocked to silence. He took the board off the driver's side of the seat and put it on the passenger's side. It's easier to clean the board than the seat, he explained. You see, two springs had poked through the driver's seat, <laughs> one on the side of the gas pedal and the other on the side of the brake pedal, hence the board to cover them. Dad, I asked, what do I do about the springs? Set between them, he replied my tired, angry father gave me a brief summary of how to drive his cantankerous old truck. I discovered the fine-tuning of choke, clutch, shift, gas, and brake on the truck, which now must travel uphill on an unmowed field with ball tires containing ridges, boulders, rocks, and holes. I won't bore you with how many times I stalled the engine or hopped or jumped the truck when it finally started, as the gas pedal nearly touched the floor and the clutch pedal was 15 inches higher. Each time I used the gas or the brake pedal, the springs would jab me in my bottom. Somehow we made it to the well at the barn. Dad lowered the bucket into the well, then after taking a long drink, dumped the water all over his lower body, wiping it off with a grain bag. As I held Skip, Dad poured the water over him and cleaned himself off. Now that dad was cleaner, I figured that he would drive the rest of the way up to the house, especially since I'd almost killed us a few times on the way up from the shore. You're going to drive the rest of the way up to the house. You're catching on. I didn't believe that for a minute. But dad, I said, the next part is even worse. The hill is steeper, rockier, more narrow, deeply rutted. Plus, there is a sharp uphill left turn. Field with loose gravel, leading onto the main road. I knew because I had driven it many times with the old horse. The difference, was, the difference was the horse knew it better than I did. Since you know the road so good, you shouldn't have any trouble, my father said, as he got into the truck on the passenger side. At that minute, I prayed to God that if He got us home safely, I never would drive again. The drive up that very steep hill with all of its obstacles, accompanied by Dad's yelling and all the jabs to my bottom, was just as bad as I knew it would be. Somehow, we made it home safely. My mother rushed out of the house Sandra, was that you driving? What happened? Mom, you do not want to know! I cried as I ran into the house, ran up the stairs to my room. Like most promises children make to God under great duress, I broke I will never drive one. There was no school bus to transport Orland High School students to Bucksport High. When I turned 15, I took driver's education at Bucksport High. As soon as I finished the course, I took the driver's test and received my license. My transportation was my dad's newer farm truck, which I used for attending classes, sports, and extracurricular activities. The truck turned out to be fun and a great blessing to a lot of people, especially me. The next story happened to my grandfather. My grandfather, Emery, lived halfway down Hard Hardscrabble Hill, the biggest hill on the Castine Road. <laughs> Many people would stop to visit him and enjoy his beautiful view, which covered the Penobscot River, Penobscot Bay, Verona Island, Sandy Point, Stockton Springs, and Searsport. Roy, who also lived on the Castine Road, was good friends with Emery. Roy was the local butcher who sold meat to the people on the road as well as to people in Penobscot and Castine. After much thought and discussion with everyone on the Castine road, Roy decided to buy a car to save time for all his deliveries. He bought a brand new Model T Ford in Bangor. While driving the car home, he stopped on Hardscrabble Hill to show off his new car, the first car on the Castine road, to Emery who was standing in its front lawn. As Roy got out of the car, he shouted, Hey, Emery, come see my new car. Emery, carefully looking over the situation, approached Roy, saying, Ah, Roy, that's quite a car you got there. But is it supposed to move when you're not in it? (laughs) They watched in horror as the car moved down the hill, gaining speed the further it went. The men ran after the car, trying to catch it. All of a sudden, the car hit a rock on the gravel road, turned right, and went up and over one of the granite boulders that lined the road. The car sailed into the woods, somehow missing the trees and boulders, squishing limbs and bushes as it landed safely, continuing its furious journey down the hill. It jumped the pigpen fence, clearing the pigpen house. The fence on the other side of the pigpen pen. The cow pasture fence landing finally on a grassy knoll, scattering hens and chickens everywhere. (laughs) The car traveled slowly up the knoll, coming to a complete stop in front of the old cow, who was calmly chewing her cud. She walked slowly to the car and began licking it, (laughs) as if to say, Welcome to the neighborhood. When the men finally arrived on the scene, barely able to catch their breaths, they immediately started the car, then carefully checked it over front to back and top to bottom. After they finished their examination, they realized the car sounded and looked perfect. Emory said, Roy, that's quite a car you got, doing all that and not a scratch on her. That's some car. Yes, sir? that's some car.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Sandra. I want to get on to our next storyteller who is Amy Rader. Uh, She is another storyteller that we first heard at Queen City Cellar Tellers in Bangor. And her story about a little dog named Belle had the audience laughing and crying, especially me. I hope she's not going to make me cry again this time. Uh, Very poignant story. Uh, Amy's the director of education at the Penobscot Theater in Bangor and is currently in the middle of a summer drama program, so she says to tell you if she seems flustered, that's why. And she also performs with Improv, Acadia, and Bar Harbor and would like to say thanks to WERU for this opportunity to which we say no. Thank you, Amy Rader, and welcome. (laughs)
6: So w- welcome, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Maine is wonderful in the summer. I love the sunshine and the beaches and the cookouts and the fun, or so I'm told. I run a youth theater program, which means I voluntarily sit in the dark with other people's children for upwards of eight hours of day. Instead of beaches, I get scripts. Instead of cookouts, I get tech rehearsals. Instead of sunshine, I get sits probes, which sounds sexy and fun, but trust me, it's not. All that being said, I love my job. Ask me again later, though, when I've been exposed to three weeks of cleaning up spilled lunches and peeling used Band-Aids off the floor. I curse the day Lunchables came up with the nacho Lunchable. If you step just right on the corner of that tray, it sends an impressive arc of salsa and nacho cheese flying into the air, a double rainbow of snack catastrophe. And speaking of stories, currently we are working on a project called Transformer Tales, and it's a bunch of stories from the Penobscot nation that we've dramatized. And in doing research for this project, a Penobscot elder told me, you're not allowed to tell stories in the summertime, because a snake will bite you. So please, let's check for snakes before we go on with anything more. Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, I'm from away. Oh, I'm sorry, that was like, oh, we liked her and then she said that. I've spent portions of 10 years in Maine and have been a full-time resident for two years. But I'm from away. And this is something I've had to say often in my adult life. Once on a trip from Georgia to Maine during one of those first 10 years, my husband and I stopped in Fredericksburg, Virginia, to tour a Civil War battlefield. While we were there, we went into an antique store where the wary clerk said, Where y'all from? I replied, Georgia? Georgia? And the clerk said, thank God, because all I had in here today are Yankees. (laughs) My husband, a delightful and oftentimes clueless person, answered, but I'm originally from Wisconsin. (laughs) My eyes jumped from the Confederate flag's Nazi memorabilia and sharp, sharp knives to the clerk's angry face, and I blurted, but we got to Georgia just as soon as we could. Before I was a resident, a permanent resident in Maine, I was summer people. You know, summer people, summer not. <laughs> One of these summers, in the middle of an existential crisis of epic proportions, I solo hiked the west face of Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park. Dumbest idea ever. First of all, I was emotionally fragile. Don't hike alone when you'd rather be writing Tori Amos lyrics in your journal and artfully weeping you'll be sorry. Second of all, it was raining. Very few hikes are good in the rain as most mountains tend to get slippery and hateful when wet. Third of all, I told people I was hiking a different mountain. If you solo hike, you must tell someone where the hell you'll be, if only so they can identify your broken, moose-gnawed body ten years on when a park ranger accidentally trips over your bones. Fourth of all, I thought I was a better hiker than I actually am. (laughs) Suffice it to say, in 09, I found myself crawling up the side of the tallest mountain in Acadia National Park, weeping. At the top of the mountain, I noticed my hands were bleeding. I couldn't stop shaking. I have nightmares about that trail to this day. My wedding ring still has scratches from the granite face of the mountain. A normal person would have stopped hiking, or... At least have stopped solo hiking, but I am not normal. For the past few years, I've been stepping out in the early hours of summer days to drive into the park and hike something on any day that I have free. I hiked Penobscot and Sargent. Lovely. I hiked Pemetic, Majestic. I hiked the north face of Cadillac and Door Mountain. Gorgeous. I hiked the South Bubble, the North Bubble, and Connor's Nubble. They were Ubly In short, I was determined that my initial mistake was not the measure of me. Then one day, I set out on another solo hike. I went up Huguenot Head to Champlain Mountain via the Beechcroft Trail and down via the Bear Brook Trail, and it was f***ing terrible. I am so used to hiking paths that are lined with trees, so you're not actually aware of your altitude until you reach the summit? Huguenot Head was a series of staircases without a railing where you could plummet to your death at any moment. I told myself, you can just turn back if you want to. Don't be proud. I answered myself back, no way in hell. It's just going to be scarier going back down. And then I faced my worst fear ever, what the guidebook listed as a very steep climb over smooth rock, What that means is that you're like a quintillion feet in the air, walking on a surface as smooth as glass, and that surface is at a 65-degree angle, and there's nothing but smooth rock around you, no trees, no jutting out rocks. If you slip, you will plummet that quintillion feet to your death. As I do in these situations, these tense situations, in all tense situations, I started to sing Specifically, I started to sing my Brave song. It's a simple song with a rudimentary melody whose lyrics vary depending on what's scaring me at that time. This time, most of it was, Oh God, please keep me from dying of hubris. I sang and I sang as I crouch ran across smooth rock from cairn to cairn. Finally, the ground evened out. And I saw that signpost that marked the summit. I threw my arms in the air in victory. I was safe. Nothing would be scary from here on out. Yes. I took a picture of that signpost at the summit, smug in the notion that I had conquered my fears. I was happy. I was validated. I was wrong. (laughs) As soon as I turned away from the sign marking the summit, I noticed that all around me, the land sank away at alarming angles toward the ocean. I looked at my guidebook and headed toward the path for my descent, only to see a rock cairn poised on the edge of a horrific ledge that seemed to drop off into nothingness. And that marked the trail that I was supposed to take. The wind blew hard. I staggered. I almost fell. I inched toward the cairn to see if I could make it past and advance down. The drop behind the cairn was precipitous, so I did the only thing I could think of to do on that bald face of rock a thousand feet in the air. I sat down and I scooted along the rock on my butt. I scooted along for maybe three-tenths of a mile. might not sound like much, but you try it. It's an eternity. I spent the better part of my time on Champlain Mountain looking like a poodle with parasites. I kept singing my idiot song as I scooted and crawled and slumped down the mountain. Verses included lyrics such as, When I have children, I hope they have better impulse control than I do. Or, Don't let me die here, God, Because I'm pretty sure that my husband would screw up my funeral. I was singing full voice when a couple of hikers came out of the trees in front of me to head up the trail that I had been scooting down. If I were a more modest person, I suppose I would say that I was embarrassed by the fact that strangers caught me in the middle of me singing my brave song while sliding on my butt. Since I was 100% focused on survival though, I'm pretty sure those nice folks think they ran into a mentally disturbed person. <laughs> well, I made it back in one piece. I hated uh, almost every middle of that minute of that hike though. And I hate that I hated it. By that point, Eight years into exploring Acadia National Park, I should know what I love and what I hate. I should know to avoid steep climbs over sheer stone. I should know that I can hate anything with a dramatic view because that usually means you're hanging on by your fingernails off the side of a cliff to enjoy that view. I should know that my time is valuable and is not to be spent on something that is destructive, terrifying, and horrible. Ultimately, that's the lesson I should have learned in 2009 before I let myself be emotionally beaten down enough to think I deserved to hike the west face of Cadillac in the rain. Don't hike what you think you deserve. Hike what you love. (laughs)
0: This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. These storytellers were recorded last summer at the WERU and Wednesday on Maine Annual Storytelling Event at the Alamo Theatre in Bucksport. We have one more story for you today here on Maine Currents. All of these three storytellers will be joining us again this year on July 26th, and we hope you'll join us then at the Alamo. It starts, doors open at 5 o'clock, it starts at 5.30. Go to WERU's website, weru.org, or to our Facebook page for more information. Information about the upcoming event. This next storyteller is Naomi Grey Chase. She'll be there as well this year. Last but not least, we have Naomi Grey Chase. She's kind of a storytelling legend around here. Some of you have heard her before. Uh, She's a local writer, a firefighter, and a yoga teacher who grew up in Orland and Bucksport. Uh, She says she's nostalgic for her childhood summers. When sunshine and swimming were plentiful, she's been a regular at storytelling events in the area, and some of you uh, may have heard her story that she told here about a year or so ago, that has become fondly known as the "Poop and Bubbles" story. (laughs) And uh, we recorded it, played it on WERU. Someone from Down East Magazine heard it, and. She was published in Downey's magazine shortly thereafter. Uh, she told another, and I told the people at Downey's magazine her, the next story that she told was equally as good, involving a, a, believe it or not, a car accident and a and a cute little goat that wouldn't get out of her car. So I can't wait to hear what she has to say tonight. Welcome, Naomi Gray Chase. <clears throat>
7: Thank you so much. That was a really beautiful introduction. It's a lot to live up to. Thanks Amy. So um, I'm Naomi Gray Chase. I think I'm our last storyteller tonight. So I just want to really thank all of the storytellers who came. Amy made me laugh so hard I almost peed my pants. Uh, I did have tears coming out of my eyes. Uh, And it's just such a pleasure to be among storytellers and the people who love to listen to them. So thank you to everyone who made tonight possible. This story is called Summertime in Maine, and everything in it is true. I am a Mainer, and also a summer girl, which means that I spend most of the months of my life in cold and in darkness, Waiting. Waiting for the days when the sun warms my skin and I can swim and garden and read a novel in the shade. It means that for most of the year I feel pent up, held back, drained by the drudgery and hardship cold weather brings. I'm a yoga teacher, so I know the best way to enjoy life is to be where you are and when you are, not to get stuck in the past or focused on the future. But when there have been 87 consecutive days of freezing cold, one tends to ruminate on summer moments lost and to ache with desire for the warm, easy moments to come. One tends to look with longing at the light summer dresses hanging in one's closet as one pulls out yet another layer of lumpy clothing with which to keep oneself warm. And one's thoughts tend to perseverate on how much better things would be if only one could walk out of doors barefoot and sip lemonade in the sun. The problem with this way of life, one of the many problems, is that lately, and by lately, I mean the last 30 years or so, summer has not been wonderful as a kid, I thrived in summertime. Summertime meant ease and freedom and swimming at that place that shall not be named. It meant riding in the backs of pickup trucks and watching fireworks on a blanket. It meant daisies and sunshines and riding bike bikes. But as an adult, I find instead that summer is painfully lonely. None of the things I dream of during the long winter months ever seem to come true. There is very little playtime, very little swimming and picnicking or companionship. All of the pent-up fantasies of summer seem to wither in the heat, dropping off their vines, all shriveled and fermenting on the ground. I never do make lemonade and sip it in the sun. I wear my summer dresses, but I can almost never seem to find anyone who wants to go anywhere or do anything with me when I'm in them. And I realized then that it's not so much the sun or the dresses or the daisies that I miss so much as the companionship I imagine all winter will go with them. The problem, perhaps, is this expectation that summer will be great. This expectation is so profound that when summer comes, I'm practically in a panic to make it come true. Summer is so fleeting here, and I want it so badly that from the moment the daffodils first start to bloom, I am aware that summer is almost over. (laughs) And it hasn't even begun. From that frantic place, my desperate dream of sultry summer days with friends or lovers only ever seems to slip away like so much salty sand through my fingers. The very best summer of my life was the summer of 1987. And without even consciously realizing it, I think that for the last three decades, I have been wishing it would be 1987 again. Every winter breeds the hope that summer will come and I will once more have all of the things that I had then. I turned 15 that summer, and I had a boyfriend I loved. We spent all our time together, alone or with our friends. We picked strawberries on a farm in the morning, watched movies and took naps and swam in his family's pool in the afternoon. I was wrapped into his family's life. And for the first time ever, I had regular meal times, and comfort and a sensation of home. We played badminton and volleyball and video games. We wrestled and did cannonballs and tried to swing the whole length of the pool and back in one breath. We were tan and joyful and happy in every moment of every day. That summer stretched out forever, taking its time, dishing out every sort of pleasure like homemade ice cream from a bottomless container. No summer before or since has ever been the same, and my longing for that companionship, that playfulness, that love, and that outdoor fun has only intensified with each and every passing season. My longing for summer love, summer fun, summer togetherness, it deepens down into me in the winter, Roots growing hardier as the ground freezes around me and then rising up in springtime like the most rapidly expanding weed exploding into life and taking over the very second the ground begins to thaw, hungry, determined, unruly. But for one reason and another, there have been very few summer moments to treasure since that glorious summer when I turned 15. I moved back to Maine in 2009, having every expectation that summer would become grand again. But I was ill for many years, and my body had limits that made moving around outside too hard for me. And I had chosen a life partner who preferred to stay inside all the time. And the few friends I knew were all busy with children, or work, or one another. I was left all alone, wishing and hoping, pacing back and forth, both literally and figuratively, just dying for someone to call and say, let's go jump in a lake. But almost no one ever did. My hope for summer romance, summer fun, baked and festered in the sun. And instead of swimming the whole length of the pool and back in one breath, I suffocated on the hot, lonely breath of my longing. In the spring of 2013, as summer approached, I was so lonely, I thought I might die. So as my tulips pushed up their brightly colored heads and cued the opening of the summer season, I took a chance. I joined a nearby fire department. It was, by turns, terrifying, beautiful, tedious, and hard. But over the last three years, what I have discovered there is a sense of purpose, of joy, of structure, of friendship. The Orland Fire Department has become for me, in all seasons, a safe and special place to be. On hot summer days, when the loneliness is too much for me, sometimes I go there and I stand alone in the fire bay, breathing the warm, stuffy air and admiring the fire trucks, standing steady, standing with me, their strong, quiet shoulders gleaming in the little rays of sunshine that break in through the tiny windows and the doors, the scent of oil and engines, the smell of metal and cool concrete, the mild, musty odor of fire hoses fills me with a new summer sensation. A feeling of contentment and possibility. A feeling that maybe it will be okay. Sometimes I go swimming alone, and on the way home, I stop at the fire department. If there is work for me to busy myself with, then I do that. And if not, I run my fingers along the pump panel of engine 511 or along the ridged rolling doors, or Rescue 581. And then I climb up into the hose bed on the top of Engine 513, and I lie there, skin still damp, and I listen to the building creak as the sun outside makes the metal in the ceiling expand. Sometimes I go out into the training room, where it is always as calm and as cool as a subterranean basement. And I lie down on the dusty floor, and I wait. I wait for an idea. I wait for a tone. I wait to be ready to go home alone again. Recently, in preparation for a training burn, I was with a group of firefighters who had been tasked with tearing down the asbestos drop ceiling in a home that had been donated to help us in our training. This home, it seemed, hadn't been touched in 40 years. We had to remove the asbestos before we could burn the building. And as we thrust our pike poles into the ceiling tiles and pulled them down, we were surprised to discover that magazines were raining down on our heads. Dozens and dozens of magazines, heaps and mountains of pristine pornographic (laughs) magazines from the 1970s, fell down on our helmeted heads. Dressed in full turnout gear, we had stumbled upon a porn pinata. Every new ceiling tile brought another stash of, I swear to you, the most extreme X international adult-themed magazines You could ever possibly imagine. We were ankle-deep in porn. We laughed, of course, and marveled, and we carried on with our jobs, scooping up the porn and tossing it down the stairs to another crew who would shovel them into the garbage with the asbestos tiles and the furniture. But near the end of the day, a young firefighter discovered among the porn a manila envelope. He opened it, expecting, I think, to find something in a similar vein. But what he pulled out instead was a five-by-seven-inch black-and-white photograph of a middle-aged woman, smiling and fully clothed. He was about to toss the envelope down the stairs when something made me stop him. I took the envelope without looking inside it, and I stashed it inside the pocket of my bunker coat to keep it safe. Later, sitting alone at home... I opened the envelope. Its address and return address had been typed with a typewriter. The postmark was from New York, New York, and two yellowed bicentennial stamps, 26 cents of postage, were still stuck to the front. Someone had written the word personal in cursive, in blue ink, and underlined it twice. Inside, nestled behind the woman's photograph, which she had protected with two squares of thin cardboard, was a packet of letters and poems, both typed and handwritten. The woman in the black and white photograph had fallen in love during a summer in Maine. In the fall of 1976, she sat down on the M train at 5.45 p.m., and on her way home from work, she got out a steno pad and a blue ballpoint pen, and she wrote a long love letter to the man she had met in Maine. My darling Joseph, she began, while I may not be as prolific with words as you, I shall attempt to respond. First, I too am astonished at the miraculous discovery of you and that I can actually hope to love without fear. I would like to picnic and go slow and lie in meadows and watch clouds and suns. I've never been seduced in a letter before. But reading those passages of your fantasy in bed made me wonder anew about your poetic powers. While I'm not sure I could remain tangled or so close for so long, I know I'll devour your kisses, however moist, the makings, because it will be so new and beautiful again again, again. I am so lonely, she wrote. Despite children, friends, your attention, I had and still must create my own pleasures. And as you know, the loneliness of having no one to share those moments with really is pain. I want to lie down, in green pastures, on a hard floor, anywhere, next to you. My soul aches, and I long for an end to this lonely existence. Somewhere, in a home in Maine, those love letters were stashed away. For this woman, whose name was not signed. I suspect that the summer of 1976 was very much like my summer of 1987. She wasn't a Mainer, but she was, I think, a summer girl. Her letters describe fantasies of picnics, of long, languid bicycle trips, of days spent smiling into the sun and relaxing into the shade. In November of 1976, she was full of melancholy for summer's romantic days gone by and a desperate hope that she would find the fearlessness to turn her dream of warm summer romance, of togetherness, into reality so that she could put an end to the grinding loneliness that loomed like a killing frost in her future. I don't know what became of the woman in the photograph or to the man she loved. Maybe she moved to Maine and she and her lover had endless summers of joy. Maybe that's why the porn stayed up in the ceiling. Maybe one or the other of them died and that's why the home stayed undisturbed for 40 years. Maybe she is still out there somewhere in New York, New York, remembering 1976 the way I remember 1987, trying to learn to love without fear. Maybe she has a hose bed to lie in alone while the heat outside causes the building to groan with each tiny expansion. Or maybe she's all right somehow, even though she still finds herself sometimes standing in her closet in win- in winter her hands grazing the seams of light summer dresses while she dreams of summertime in maine thank you
0: that was local storyteller naomi gray chase and before her you heard stories by amy rader and sandra dillon all three of them will be performing at WERU's annual storytelling event again this year you can go to our Facebook page or our website WERU.org for more details, it's coming up on July 26th, doors open at 5 o'clock at the Alamo Theatre, we are out of time so I'm going to just leave it there you've been listening to Maine Currents independent local news, views and culture here on WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org WERU.org
2: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Merrill's Bookshop, 134
0: Water Street,